This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, how are we doing this morning, Bridgeway? It is great to see you here. I couldn't be more grateful to have you here in person, as well as those of you who are joining us at Church Online, Church at Home. If you're just visiting with us, as Justin said, we've been having this conversation about rhythms. We believe that there are healthy rhythms that will grow your spiritual life and can lead to these life-changing discipleship experiences. There are actually seven rhythms, and so each week we're taking one of the rhythms. We're two down, five to go. It is great to be here together. And to get you kind of introduced to the rhythm that we're going to talk about this morning, I want to tell you a little story. In fact, I found this past week it was so cold and so frigid. I was inside reading a lot more than normal. And I found myself reading uh, some biographies on comedians. In fact, I'll probably mention a couple of them this morning. But one of them has to do with Robin Williams. In fact, I didn't know this, but when Robin Williams was coming up as a a young comic doing stand-up, he would actually work out his comedy routine on airplane flights. In fact, he would have it worked out where he would get on the plane, and he became so well-known for this that the uh, pilot would, uh, would come over to the loudspeaker and say, uh, thank you for flying us, with us today at American, but as a special guest, I want to introduce you, introduce you to Robin Williams. And he would literally get up in the aisle and go up and down on the plane and just doing his comedy routines. And how many of you would like to fly on a plane like that? That'd be kind of entertaining, wouldn't it? In fact, uh, Robin Williams was so good at impersonating, he said he could impersonate anyone, that he would actually get on the plane incognito so no one would know who he was And he would go into the back of the plane, and he had a a pilot's uh, uniform. And he would change, and he would come out of the bathroom looking like the pilot of the airplane. And he would start greeting the people, greeting the passengers from the back of the plane. And he had this all worked out with the actual pilot in the front of the plane. And the real pilot would come out of the front of the plane, and he would be greeting guests at the front. And Robin Williams would be working his way from the back. And and they had this whole shtick worked out. They would kind of meet in the middle and bump into each other and look at each other like, you're not the pilot, I'm the pilot. No, you're not the pilot, I'm the pilot. And then they would end this routine with this line, and they would say, well, if you're the pilot and I'm the pilot then who's flying this plane? And of course, the whole crowd would would erupt, and they would go running into the cockpit. This is, again, way before 9-11 and TSA security. But I thought about that line, well, who's flying this plane? And I thought about how we often have that same question. It's kind of the question of life. Who's flying this plane? And you might think that, well, my life is dictated by, by circumstances. It's controlled by the big guy in the sky. Or maybe, more than likely, you, you think that your life is controlled by you. There's kind of everything about our lives that give us this feeling of being in control, right? In fact, you, you are oftentimes sort of this power broker of all the things that you can do on your own in life. I mean, you could right now, you could take out your phone and, and you could order lunch, right? You could have it delivered to your house at noon when you get home today. You could take out that same device and and you could make sure that you've got a ride to wherever you need to go. In fact, that device is your gateway to all of your social networks. You could, you know, you could find your future spouse on that phone. In fact, we're kind of mirroring these lines between your life being almost indistinguishable from your device. And it all creates kind of this, this feeling of control. And it's really an illusion of control because then things happen in your life. This plane doesn't get to where you want it to go. It doesn't get to where it says it should on the ticket. 
And that, of course, might be caused by turbulence, by, by mistakes, uh, by choices you make, by the consequences of sin. And then you're kind of forced to really ask this question, well, who is flying this plane? And I believe that these rhythms give us this opportunity to kind of ask this question in light of God, in, in light of the author and Savior of all of our lives. In fact, we've been looking at these, these rhythms like spending time with God and then talking to God. We call that prayer. And it's all meant to give us an opportunity to kind of check this question in our lives every moment. Who's flying this plane? And the third rhythm that I want to introduce you to this morning actually has to do with when kind of the plane of our lives get off track, when we allow sin and mistakes and choices to derail us from God, this rhythm allows us to get right back on track. And this rhythm this morning that I want to introduce to you is the rhythm of repentance. And I got to tell you, I've been a pastor for 20 years now, and I can tell you there's probably not a lot of sermons that I've heard or even that I've given on this idea of repentance. You could kind of almost call it this morning the the lost doctrine of repentance. It's not something we talk about a lot because, well, most of the time you see this word and you think, uh-oh, I've done something wrong. Uh-oh, I've made a mistake. Oh, no, I'm in trouble with God. And you can kind of have this feeling of guilt, and it can kind of be sort of depressing. And I want to let you know this morning that while those might be the feelings that God gives you, we would call that kind of the conviction of your heart, that repentance is way more than that. In fact, it's liberating. It's freeing to actually step into this rhythm and not just to repent one time a long time ago, but to have this practice, this daily opportunity of repentance. I want to give you this morning what I would call kind of a, a biblical overview of repentance, kind of a meta-narrative on this word. In fact, I want to actually try to answer three questions this morning. When it comes to repentance, I want to answer what is it, and then secondly, how does it work, and then finally, what do I need to repent of? Maybe the question that's kind of rolling around in the back of your mind throughout this entire message. What do I need to repent of? And to kind of answer these questions, I want to look at a story that I think often gets overlooked in the scriptures. And it's found in Luke chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I would love for you to turn in God's word to Luke chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is in the New Testament, meaning it's kind of towards past halfway. It's almost towards the back of the Bible. There are four books. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they give you the story of Jesus. They give you his life, his teaching, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Jesus came into the world, and he was born into a world that was essentially ruled by sin, by people who didn't know how they were to live their life. And Jesus comes, and he's both fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%. And he offers this really unique vantage point on life and the way in which it's supposed to work, how life is supposed to work when it isn't impacted by sin and error and wrong, and how to restore this relationship that we can have with God, with our Heavenly Father. And as I've been kind of sharing throughout this series, there's sort of one thread, kind of an iron thread that goes through the entire Bible, and it's this sort of this battle imagery. In fact, I, I want to make sure I keep that in front of you this morning as well. If you were here the first week, the whole ser series, or the whole message was about being battle ready, and how we actually can go into our quiet time in the same way in which God would want us to be prepared for the world around us. And how our God is, is willing and able to come alongside of our battles. And we looked in the second week about how prayer is really this, this focus, kind of like a gladiator, of being focused on what God would say to us in every moment of every day. And this same idea, this battle imagery, gets carried into the life of Jesus. 
In fact, this morning, maybe the way to think about it is, is in war, there's sort of ground attacks and there's air attacks, right? There's kind of a ground war and then there's an air war. What do I mean by that? Well, when we read about the life of Jesus, we see that he had a very active sort of ground attack into the world. He, he came into the world and his ground attack was always to come against the issues of the day. He, he came and there was hypocrisy. There was religious hypocrisy. There were hypocritical people and Jesus kind of brings this ground attack against their hypocrisy. Jesus brings this ground attack against sin and against hurting people, against really healing, bringing healing to those who are hurting. It's kind of his ground war, his public ministries, teaching and correcting errors. And then we see Jesus also had a very effective air war as well. He would oftentimes go off and, and be alone. He would go on the mountains and pray with God, and he would have kind of this, this time of airing out his concerns with his heavenly Father. In this story we're about to read, it's a ground attack against Jesus. And you're going to see Jesus is going to get flanked, and he's going to have to deal with, with people who are bringing him sort of like current events, sort of headlines of their day. And I want you to see how Jesus responds. It's in Luke chapter 13. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. We'll come back to that. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now we're trying to answer this question this morning is what is repentance? And it's sort of a story that's on sort of maybe two levels. The first level is going to get at the answer that we need to this question. And it has to do with that very uncomfortable phrase that was underlined twice on the screen, unless you repent. And then he ends with this parable, the story of the fig tree. We'll end with that as well. But let me begin by just trying to answer this question. What is repentance? Well, we see that in these two stories that Jesus has happened, has in this narrative, We see that repentance really begins with understanding that we live in a very broken world. In fact, the first story is sort of this headline that the people bring to Jesus. They say, Jesus, uh, newsflash, did you hear about those Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices? Now, that's really uh, cryptic language, but what he's saying is, hey, did you hear about that issue where those Galileans were worshiping? And Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, came in and just killed them. Again, you got to remember in that day, uh, sacrifices were done on an altar. They involved animals. You would slit the animal's throat. You would place the bloody animal on the altar. The blood would run. And these Galileans are ambushed. They're making their offering. They're worshiping and sacrificing to their gods. And Pilate cuts them down. Their blood is then mixed with the sacrifices. 
And the text doesn't really tell us, but kind of an interesting sort of twist on the story is you don't really know who these Galileans are. And yet there's only two choices. One choice would be that these are Galileans who are Jews. So think about that. If they're Jewish, then Jesus should have some sort of sympathy. They're, they're from the line of Israel. So Jesus should have some sympathy for his people. But I don't think they were Jewish Galileans. In fact, the way the story kind of plays out and the question that Jesus reads into it, you have to assume that these Galileans were Samaritans. And Samaritans did offer pagan sacrifices. Uh, they were not liked by the Jews. In fact, they were hated, they were avoided, they were called half-breeds. And then, if that's who it was, then the story kind of takes on almost a sinister feel to it. Hey, Jesus, did you hear about those sinners? And they were cut down, they were bled out, they were placed on the altar by Pilate. Kind of like, are they worse sinners than anybody else? Again, I told you I was reading through some comedians' uh, biographies this week. Reminds me of another comedian. Uh, you might remember an old skit on Saturday Night Live, uh, the church lady on church chat. You remember Dana Carvey playing that person? And she would always find kind of the notorious sinners in her day, and she would sort of like light them up on her show, like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, and always had this line like, well, how convenient. Who's to blame? I don't know. Satan? And I kind of think that's how they brought this report to Jesus. Like, who's to blame? Is it Pilate? This is kind of this argument from morality. What do you do when bad people do bad things? I mean, come on, Jesus. Don't they kind of have it coming to them? And then you read Jesus' response. He very clearly says, do you think that they're worse than you, worse sinners than you? Jesus doesn't even give him a chance to answer. He answers his own question. No. Of course not, but unless you repent, kind of flips the script. I bet this would have been incredibly uncomfortable for them. Hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're not asking about our need to repent. I'm saying, what about those people? Aren't they bad people? Don't they have what's coming to them? And Jesus very clearly flips the script, as Jesus is known for doing. And I'm sure they didn't want to talk about their own need to repent. And so Jesus kind of doesn't even really skip a beat. He actually rolls from one current event that they bring to him, he rolls right into another. And again, everyone in that day would have known this. Verse 4, Jesus says, well, what about those 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Again, this would have been like headline news. This would have been like 9-11, towers falling. They would have all known of this instance. And he kind of asked the question that they're sort of wondering about. Were these people, these people who the tower fell on, were they more guilty than all the other people in Jerusalem, the tower, who didn't have the tower fall on them? See, the first story is an atrocity. What do you do when bad things happen to bad people? But the second story is just tragic. And what do you do when innocent lives are lost? Then how do you make sense of that? In the first case, it's just bad people. But in the second example, the universe is unfair. God is unfair. And Jesus gives them the exact same answer. He flips the script on them again and says, unless you repent, you too will perish. Isn't this cheery talk this morning? Don't you just love this? This is painting this picture that when it comes to repentance, what is repentance? It is a universal need. That no one can go through life without having to deal with this rhythm of repentance. It's a universal 
universal need. Whether you're moral or innocent, whether you're skeptical or religious, maybe today we would kind of modernize this and we would put this kind of in the frame of other worldviews, other religions, and you would say the same thing, whether you're Buddhist or Hindu, whether you're Muslim or, or you're a really good per- person, you're a Christian, right? Jesus would say, it does not matter. All must walk through this path of repentance. You too must repent. Now, if you find this confusing, you're not alone. In fact, uh, this was one of the, the great points of the Reformation. In fact, uh, Martin Luther famously kind of led this Protestant Reformation. And there were other reformers as well, but Martin Luther is sort of the one that was famous for taking the 95 theses and nailing them to the door on the church, Catholic Church in Wittenberg. And one of those proofs was this sola fide, this faith alone, that we're saved by faith alone. And then Martin Luther would have to take this idea and teach it to his church. And he had a really interesting way of, of thinking about this doctrine of repentance. He said that when he taught it in his church, he, he would look out and he said, he described his parishioners as this. He, he called them, that he said that they were like cows staring at a new gate. Isn't this a cute cow? Just a cute cow? Martin Luther would say that's, that's what us Christians look like. We're, when we come to repentance, we're like cute little cows staring at a new gate. We just blink our pretty brown eyes. We're like, I don't get this. How does this work? And he would kind of more or less insinuate that we're just simple, right? I mean, we're just trying to go from one field where we're grazing to the next field where we're grazing. Any Yellowstone fans out there? You know, the cowboys are always trying to move the cattle from one field to the next. And Martin Luther would say, that's, that's what you're like as a Christian. You're just trying to move from this area to that area. And the path in which you must walk is the one of repentance. What is repentance? It's a universal need. So that's what repentance is. Let's look at this next question then. And how does it work? How does it actually work in my life? And the answer is found in seeing what Jesus did. He kind of moves the conversation. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's saying it's, it's not enough to just know the current events. Maybe today he would say, you know, stop scrolling on your phone, you know, just death scrolling every bad news item that you can find. And instead he says, think of it as this story. And he begins to tell him this parable, this heavenly story with an earthly meaning. He says, instead, think of repentance this way. And it's a very simple parable. There's a fig tree, and every year the owner of the vineyard comes to this fig tree, and it doesn't produce any type of fruit. And so the owner of the vineyard goes to the gardener and says, I've been coming here for three years. That tree is useless. It's dead to me. Get out a chainsaw, cut it down, throw it in the burn pile. And the gardener compassionately steps in and says, no, 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 give it Give it time. In fact, the gardener says, I'll take responsibility. I'll care for the tree. I'll fertilize the tree. I'll put some manure on the tree, whatever it takes, but, but give it time. And, of course, this story is very easy to follow, is it not? When you begin to see who the people are in the story, in fact, who, who is the owner of the vineyard? Well, who is the owner of all vineyards? It's God. In fact, another theologian, a guy by the name of Abraham Kuyper, would say that when God looks at the world, he's very stingy. He would say that God looks over his universe, and there's not one square inch of all God's creation in which God does not say, mine. He's the owner of every tree in every field. 
And of course, you are that fig tree. And the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is the gardener. And Jesus is working and cultivating deep into the roots of your soil. See, repentance seems like it's depressing. It seems like you should have this guilty moment and feeling, but it's actually liberating. It's the rescue plan of God sending Jesus into the world. It's not, oh, I guess I got to repent. Oh, I guess I got to learn this rhythm. It's returning again and again to the gardener who gives you life, who brings life to you. I love how the writer of Romans picks up on this uh, later in the Bible in Romans 2 verse 4. He writes this. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not even realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see what he's saying there? He's saying, do you show contempt? Do Do you think it's worthless when you look at all the riches of God's kindness and long-suffering and patience, and do you not even see that it's this kindness that's intended to lead you down the path of repentance? It's Jesus pleading with the Father over and over, show this person more time, more grace, more opportunities to understand this love. He's digging at the roots of your soul. Repentance as a word is defined as this complete changing of your mind. Uh, to make like literally a 180 degree change. You're going in one direction and repentance is turning and going the other way. It would be walking down a path and saying, this path leads to death. I need to turn and walk this direction. If, if you were riding a skateboard, you'd be riding one way and you'd hit a flip turn 180 degrees the other way. I was thinking about uh, if, you've, if you've known anyone that's gone into the military. I've had three kids go into the military and they all go the same path. You have to go to BMT, basic military training. And BMT boot camp is essentially designed to break you down and change you 100% from who you are. You think you know how to fold your socks? Not the way the military tells you. And so they break you down. They get you to fold your socks exactly the way everyone else does. They change your mind in how you march, how you salute, how you clean your weapon. All of that is designed to have this complete change. I've seen it in my kids that have all gone to basic. And repentance is that change. It's a 180 of your heart, of your emotions and feelings. It's a 180 of your mind and the way in which you think. And repentance is a 180-degree change in your body and how you act. So that's how it works, and it leads to this last question, which is naturally then, well, what do I need to repent of? And, you know, all this week I was thinking of, of how to maybe teach this part of it because this is the crux of it. It's great to know what repentance is. It's fascinating to understand how it works. But it really does your soul no good if you aren't willing to actually embrace this rhythm and to do it. And I thought about, well, maybe the way to teach this is I'll list off the top five things that you need to repent of. And then I'm like, well, there's probably more than five, and I could fit more than five on the screen. Maybe there's a top ten of repentance, right? I'm like, well, where do I draw the line? Is it a top hundred? (laughs) Is it a top thousand things we need to repent of? And then the Lord was very kind to me, and he said, you know, you don't need to tell them because they likely, probably, already know. In fact, you probably, even now in this message, you feel some digging deep into the roots of your soul. You feel some scraping of God kind of working away this area, this area where you've maybe pushed him away. And he's reminding you this morning of this rhythm. He's trying to get your attention. 
I'll close with this story, and it's uh, from a really good book called The World is My Home, written by a guy, by American author by the name of James Mishner. And he writes about a childhood experience. He says this, he says, the farmer living at the end of our lane had an aging apple tree that had once been abundantly productive, but had now lost its energy and ability to bear any fruit. The farmer hammered eight nails, long and rusty, into the trunk of the tree. And that autumn, a miracle happened. The tired old tree, having been goaded back to life, produced a bumper crop of juicy red apples, bigger and better than we had ever seen before. And so I asked the farmer, and he explained, hammering in the eight rusty nails gave it a shock to remind it that its job is to produce apples. So I asked him, was eight important? And the farmer said these words that I would never forget. If you're going to send a message, be sure that it's heard. I want to tell you this morning that I believe God has sent a message in his messenger, Jesus. And if you feel him this morning just kind of knocking at your heart and, and giving you this reminder, he is real and available for you to reach out to him. He's still looking to send this message deep into our souls. Maybe for you this morning is just the simple question, what do I need to repent of? And in this moment, as Joy and the team come up to lead us, we just want to give you some time to just simply have a conversation, to begin this rhythm again with God, to just admit what he already knows. You know, this idea of producing fruit in your life, it's no coincidence that there are these fruits of the Spirit. And maybe this morning, you just simply take a little inventory of your own heart, and, and you ask, am I producing this, this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness self-control and if you're not to just simply repent of that to bring kind of this change of mind to your time of prayer with God to allow him to change and to work in you maybe it's a habit or it's an addiction and it's not only hurting you but it's hurting the people around you and you just use this time to do the deep work of your soul to come clean and to bring it before him if you would bow your heads and pray with me please God, I do thank you for the goodness and the kindness that you offer to each and every one of us. And I do pray that as you've said, Lord, that this kindness would lead us into this rhythm, into this pattern and this habit of just regularly repenting, regularly changing and offering all of our mind and all of our body and all of our hearts before you, God. I trust and I pray that in that you would do the work of digging and cultivating and allowing us to produce the fruit that our world so desperately needs, God. So do what only you can do. Come in and work in the ways in which we need you. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 